This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Peter Valencourt, a computational scientist at the Cornell Center for Advanced Computing. Peter is a member of the consulting group at the Center for Advanced Computing, and he's worked on a variety of interesting projects since he started in 2018, which we're looking forward to hearing about today. So first, Peter, welcome to RSC Stories. Hello. So you started your job fairly recently, at least 2018, I hope, wasn't that long ago. Can you take us back perhaps to your undergraduate training or when you first got interested in science or computing and tell us about your journey? That feels like a long time ago, partly because of the pandemic, but it wasn't that long ago in real time. I started undergrad right after the military, actually. So out of high school, I went into the Air Force and did explosive ordnance disposal. And then when I left the military, I went to community college at Monroe Community College in Rochester. And then I transferred to Clarkson University in Potsdam. And I was originally a math major at MCC. And I continued to be a math major at Clarkson and I added physics. So I guess I've always been interested in math and science and still am. I really love math. I think computers were kind of always a part of my life. My dad was interested in them and my brother as well. But I really got interested in computing in particular when I started to see the overlap with science, and that was at Clarkson. So the first semester at Clarkson, I had a class that was in a lab attached to the Clarkson Open Source Institute, and that name will probably come up again. We called it COSI for short, and I think that community just invited me into a curiosity I had been unaware of in me about computers. As a math major at Clarkson, they require two freshman level CS courses. And I think it was during my first CS course that I really realized that I liked programming. That was probably not the first time I had touched programming, but it was probably the first time I had enjoyed it. Maybe the semester before that, we also had a class called Introduction to Mathematical Modeling and Software. I mean, we did like MATLAB, which I wouldn't consider programming and Maple, but there was some discussion about other languages and other types of programming and starting to see the overlap in, I guess, programming mathematical models being a powerful tool to be able to solve math and science problems. That drew me in really fast. And I think I pretty quickly became interested in what is this high performance computing, scientific computing area, which was developing at the time. That's around 2012, developing in my frame of mind, at least. I did an undergraduate research project in applied mathematics and also one in astrophysics. And the two of those were both programming heavy, and that really solidified it for me, I think. I also switched to using Linux my second semester, I think, entirely. And I love Linux, and I will never go back. <laughs> that world of people using Linux overlaps heavily with programmers, and people using Linux in science overlaps heavily with scientific computing. Huge plus one there. I had a similar experience where I think I started with Windows and then I had a blue screen of death. And, you know, I think I was in grad school at the time and I couldn't reinstall Windows. I didn't have any of the disks. So I installed Ubuntu and it totally changed my life. I could never imagine going back. I see a Windows screen popping up and I kind of like hiss and run away into my cave. So now you're at Cornell. 
you want to kind of briefly share with us what your role looks like there and maybe a project that you're working on that you find interesting? Because I'm in this consulting group, we have sort of a focus on Cornell research and some other outside collaborations as well, but mostly Cornell-focused research. Researchers come to us, they have some kind of computational problem, whether it be cloud computing or on a local cluster or on one of the national supercomputers, or they'd simply like to take their code in whatever state it's in currently and move it there. Also program optimization, those kinds of things. Researchers come to us, they ask us for help, and we consult with them. We're grant-based. We're essentially cost recovery in the sense that we work to be sustainable. We don't charge a profit or anything like that. We work off of grants to be able to continue to stay open. So we're a service center in that sense. And so as a consultant, whatever projects come across that I have expertise in or could develop expertise in, I might get asked or called upon to work on. So currently I'm working with a researcher in agriculture on a data aggregation program. And that I actually inherited. The architecture uses Haskell and Cassandra, and there's also some Python. There's a researcher in communications I'm working with on a social network analysis project. That's in R, and I really like that one as well. In that case, I'm called upon more on the side of statistics and mathematics, but also the programming. There's a large data set we're working with that has some complexities, but it's less on the side of HPC specifically. And then I often get involved with container-oriented projects. For example, through the larger Exceed organization, I'm on the XCRI team, Exceed Cyber Infrastructure Resource Integration. And that group is also, in a sense, service-oriented in that we're there to help the Exceed community use the Exceed ecosystem, whether that be having a campus infrastructure that matches the Exceed systems or helping enable people to use the Exceed systems more easily, transferring between the two. So I'm involved in a project where we create called, called the Container Template Library, where we're creating containers to ease the transition to Exceed machines. So people can use common software that isn't always available on the different Exceed machines. And I really enjoyed that. And we just completed a major project also with containers, containers and cloud infrastructure called the Aristotle Cloud Federation Project. We're still wrapping up some papers for that, actually, that should be forthcoming. That's really where I guess my area of expertise has been highlighted most recently is working on containers for HPC that are movable across, portable across different systems, whether it be AWS, GCP, Azure, or national infrastructure supercomputers like Exceed. We also take various support tickets if, if people have specific smaller problems and things like that. And we also develop trainings and education. And I'm also involved in the Advanced Computing for Social Change workshop series. And there's probably some things I'm forgetting, so I apologize. That's a long list. That is a long list. Wow. And I, I can't imagine how you get through all of that in a day. It sounds like a lot of fun and exciting work, but it does sound like sort of a lot. It's a lot to balance. <laughs> yes. So notably, you did most of your training before a research software engineer was sort of a known thing. So, you know, back in, I guess, 2012, 2013, there was work going on in Europe. It wasn't really a thing yet in the U.S. How did you discover the United States Research Software Engineer Association, USRC? How would you define a research software engineer? And do you consider yourself one? I do consider myself a research software engineer. And I think it's interesting to answer this first before defining it, because the title in and of itself, I think, is appealing. I like research a lot. 
and I like software a lot, and I like building things. And if you simplify the definition down to those three things, then that, that covers a broad category. I've said before, I think in discussion, that I really like the idea of being a computational scientist, because at my core, I'm really a scientist more than an engineer. If you had to give me the choice between building something and thinking about something, you'll find me sitting down thinking about something instead of building it. That's just a propensity that I have. And I might come up with some new design and never implement it. Not to say that scientists don't things or get things done. And I also do build and get things done as well. But I think it's interesting because I was also a software engineer in industry before coming to Cornell. And during my time in industry, there's a very clear definition of what a software engineer is. And I think academia has a very clear definition of what research is and maybe what a research associate is and does to some extent. It may vary by discipline. But the definition of a research software engineer, I think, is broad enough to encompass those different kinds of inclinations towards research and towards developing software. Because in the end, folks who are developing software for different disciplines in domain sciences may end up falling into these categories, even if they're not necessarily trained in software engineering themselves. And it was strange for me, I think, coming from industry to Cornell, even though I've already admitted an inclination towards research. It was strange because it was enlightening to realize how much of those techniques and tools that I learned as part of the tools of the trade of software engineering are really necessary in research today. I was shocked how far we've come from when I was doing undergraduate research to now, where software packages really are maintained by researchers to a large extent within the research community. And there are different standards, maybe different processes or policies that people tend to follow as compared to industry, for sure. But you may have someone who's a chemical engineer maintaining the core package for all the folks who are running HPC. That was a random example, but I do know a researcher in radio astronomy who is maintaining one of the core packages for searching for pulsars. And I was interacting with him through a pull request one day, and that's when I realized this is very strange. This astrophysicist, astronomer, I know him mostly through GitHub. And I would typically think of that as maybe like a software engineering type of activity. And yet it's one of his core parts of his job. Developing software, it's almost always research oriented. Even if I'm not focused on the development of software as the end goal, I end up being a software maintainer in a lot of different forms, just by the very nature of the world that we live in. I think that is ultimately what led me to discover the US RSEs group. I was already involved in research software development through my work at Cornell for a while. And I'm trying to think exactly when I discovered it, but it was sometime during the pandemic, I stumbled on the Slack group and or a webpage or, or maybe several and realized, oh, wow, there's a whole community of other people. And I think I had already interacted with a number of folks in this community without realizing there was a formal organization. When you look across our community, what do you think are some of the biggest current challenges and what hopes do you have for our future? The first challenge I think for me that always comes to mind is going to be diversity. And I think that this is probably talked about a lot more often than it's actually felt. But I do think it's one of the biggest challenges, even though everybody's already mentioning it or hinting at it, or there are talks about it at various conferences, I think that it almost becomes an even bigger challenge than is realized because 
so few folks even see the existing diversity that we have as valuable. And I'm not trying to bash anyone for not, oh, you don't care enough about diversity. I don't think that's what I mean at all. I think folks, they just don't see how diversity matters. I was at a conference recently, my first in-person conference, having a conversation with someone about this exact topic of why does diversity matter? Because I was hosting the LGBTQIA plus affinity group co-hosting with a couple of other folks and hosting the people with disabilities affinity group because I fall into both of those categories. I happen to be the kind of person who falls into many invisible diverse categories. So on the surface, I can kind of blend into this community where I seem like your stereotypical heteronormative cisgendered white guy. And the length of my beard seems to give me a pass on being a huge nerd. I think I'm particularly aware because I almost always fit in, in some way, I'm particularly aware of where I don't and where I see others who aren't able to be as invisible intentionally or not. Can't camouflage. I guess that's the word I'm looking for is camouflage. Animals that can camouflage themselves, they don't damage themselves or functionally change themselves by changing their outward appearance. What's inside is all still the same, and they're not a different animal or a different, categorically different because they have a different outward color. This is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's really relevant here. I've been personally going through a journey recently of, I spent a lot of time as a trans man being stealth in this community and in a lot of communities. And I think the previous presidential administration, plus the pandemic, plus a lot of the discussions that are going on in culture have helped me to realize that being invisible for me was painful. And I think that it can be a good thing also. I think for a time it was very helpful for me to find a place of health and stability. The unfortunate truth is that the LGBTQ plus community experiences a lot of trauma, experiences a lot of rejection socially, economic hardship, those kinds of things are more often more common just because of the difference in opinion people have on how people should live their lives. And it's very unfortunate. It usually happens much younger than people realize in a lot of cases. And so these kinds of effects can have kind of a long-term effect on how we interact with the world, how our start in the world looks. And I think that also being a veteran going into higher education, just having a different perspective on how things are and being a person with disabilities, there's a lot of different ways that I come into this space seeing things differently than most folks. So going back to the original discussion, this idea that I'm invisible, but I can see the differences and how people value certain things more or less. I think it's led me to feel a ton of compassion for women in HPC. Just thinking about how long women in HPC have been struggling to get recognition for all their contributions, which I think they wouldn't be struggling with as much if not for sexism in our society. And I think similarly, the whole tech community, including academia and industry, et cetera, everybody is taking a look at why are we not attracting a diverse group of skin colors for lack of a better way to say it specifically. It is very shocking how it is predominantly white in tech. There's no real functional reason in my mind. I just don't see why it isn't seen, I guess, as such a dire problem as I often feel like it is just looking around. Because studies have shown that diverse teams do better. Diverse groups tend to perform better than those lacking diversity. 
And sometimes there's a bit of a cop-out in the discussion that maybe people aren't interested. And I mean, my own story is I wasn't interested until I was exposed. And I think I had to be exposed in a way that it related to things I was interested in. And I think so much of white male culture has made connections to the technology industry so that it's very easy for white males to see, oh, that fits for me. It doesn't mean it doesn't fit for them. That's great. It just means I think we're not making the connections to a more diverse range of cultures. We're not making these tools and experiences that we have that are universally, in my opinion, universally interesting and curious. We're not conveying or teaching them in a way that encourages a more diverse set of folks to be interested. And I don't mean people aren't trying, and I don't mean people aren't passionate about it. I guess that's part of why I really like being involved in the Advanced Computing for Social Change workshop, because it's taking a perspective of things that matter to diverse individuals and inviting them to use advanced computing for solving those kinds of research questions, whether it be from the faculty side or the student side. That's why I see these issues around diversity in particular, especially recruitment and retention. Retention being very important and often overlooked as much as recruitment being kind of a focal point and not recruitment and retention for the sake of numbers or for the sake of checking a box or feeling good about oneself, but because diverse perspectives make such a huge difference in the types of work that we're doing. And I really love being at Cornell and being in academia in particular, because there is that focus on making the world a better place. And we have this opportunity to solve real problems with research and come up with new solutions or new questions even. And I think that if we can invite more folks who can solve those problems, I think we'll get more interesting solutions. That's been my experience. The thing that I see as hope on the horizon, the hope for the future that I see, it really is the folks I see entering this field. I was very, very inspired by affinity groups at SC21. Also by working with the students I've mentored through the RU program at Cornell, just seeing the energy and the excitement of students surrounding things that we often don't see as important to change, they won't settle for less than better. And that goes for, I think, technical issues as well. Students often surprise me, something I might not think is that important, but they're very curious about, and they go look into it, and they bring it back, and they say, actually, we can fix this really easily, just because they took a couple extra moments to find a better way. That's really interesting. I feel like I'm hearing you say on a high level two things, and it's almost a chicken and an egg problem, which is possibly why we're not making progress on things very quickly. So on the one hand, you're saying that people are drawn to solve problems that are important and interesting to them. And because we've had this very sort of vanilla, undiverse culture, we're not really doing a good enough job, like naturally attracting a diverse set of people. And then because of that, we don't have good representation of different groups. And then of course, that drives forward the problems that are worked on and what's important. Goes back even further. I don't know if you listened to, we had an RSC Stories episode with Robin Wilson, and we talked quite a bit about disability and diversity. And he brought up the fact that there are 100% people out there in our community with either disability and or they fall into diverse groups, but they do not speak up. We don't really see them. And it's because of what you said, they're camouflaged or they're hiding 
I asked myself, well, why is that? It could be an issue of people not being comfortable expressing themselves and their differences or being afraid to because maybe there's these unspoken expectations about what it means to be normal or what it means to be an RSC. What can we do better to make this a comfortable, safe place for people to be able to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm interested in, this is what I need? Tying back into what can we do to, to make the situation better, there's a couple things in my mind that I see that would be very beneficial. One of them is going to sound odd, but I think there should be a PhD program that is specifically focused on a degree in computational science and engineering that doesn't require you to have a domain science as your focus, or doesn't require you to have a particular application in mind when you apply or doesn't require you to meet the expectations of some other degree program in order to fit in. I think it's starting to go that way. And I think that there's been this focus for so long that the software is secondary to the science in so many disciplines. I'm thinking of physics in particular, just speaking from personal experience, not saying that's all physicists, but there are physicists out there who don't see software as important at all, whether because they're theorists or because the students write the software and the physicist does the physics. I think having that recognition of this discipline as a discipline in its own right, cyber infrastructure, whether it be for cloud or for high-performance computing, or just for your laptop, software engineering for those variety of platforms is important across the board for science. And it's important in its own right, and it's different. It's different than industry software engineering. And I think any research software engineer that you talk to knows that if they've had experience with industry, they can say, yeah, this is definitely different. And I know that there are industries that are research focused that also use those kinds of philosophies. But to a large extent, the general scientist is not able to escape software anymore. Having this discipline be recognized at the level of its necessity that it has reached in our world for answering real problems in science, especially large scale problems, especially things that require heavy computation, students are becoming required to learn more and more software engineering in order just to get any degree. And I think having it separated out as its own discipline, not separated per se, but recognized separately as its own discipline and having the same importance as the other science disciplines, it would have a large impact because if you're a graduate student and you're trying to decide, do I tackle this software problem that will help me finish my dissertation? Or do I try and focus on the science I need to know to get to my dissertation. It's a balancing act. And that balancing act is becoming more and more difficult for folks who don't have the background in computational science. And so I think if it were recognized as its own discipline and less of the burden were placed on the student to kind of justify the software they need to build or to balance both the software that's necessary and the science, there could be a broader, broader scope of collaborations. I think it would be great if there were more computational scientists in general, which diversity could help with because there would be a larger pool of folks coming in. And then computational scientists collaborate more broadly with more disciplines. I think there are a lot of problems that are computational science oriented in a variety of disciplines, and it's the same problem. I look at it a lot like applied mathematics. Applied math is a toolbox, but that toolbox is math. You have to know the math itself. You have to really, truly understand the math to apply it to a variety of situations. Computational science is like that. We apply sometimes very advanced computer science concepts or even some very advanced 
science concepts or applied math concepts all to a particular problem. And so there might be a problem in biology, astrophysics, and physics software that all is the same problem computationally, but it looks, it only looks the same to someone, you know, maybe they're all nails and it only looks the same to someone holding a hammer. To the scientists, they just see the nail. They don't see, I need that hammer. And then once they build the hammer within their discipline and they hit the nail, they don't go solve it in the other disciplines. And it's the same, I see it connected, I guess, to diversity. I know it sounds like I've gone off on a total tangent here. I see it connected directly to diversity because you have the same problems in graduate education with diverse groups dropping off that you do in the technical disciplines, specifically, you know, retention, the issue of retention of diverse groups. If we were able to value that it actually does take a lot of extra time to learn and understand computational science on top of the other discipline they're trying to study. We might solve the problem for folks who say want to be a chemist, but don't have access to expensive technology as they're growing up and need to learn all this extra computational science in order to succeed as a chemist today or a biologist or a physicist, et cetera. It might take some of that burden off of them to be able to collaborate with someone who does as a computational scientist. Or for the person who is coming from a background where they weren't exposed to computational science before and they're suddenly interested in it, whether it be an undergraduate or graduate education, they have an avenue to go explore that kind of science in and of itself. And those kind of programs, I think, are a great way to attract new diversity into the field just simply by being inclusive in their recruitment and retention of graduate students. It's a great opportunity, I think, to change the landscape of the discipline, both in the sense that new students are coming with bright ideas and diverse backgrounds, but also that recognition that software engineering is no longer just an industry practice, it's an advanced practice for science as well. And we need research software engineers. We need people who are trained at a high level to solve these advanced problems. And if that recognition were there, I think it would take a lot of the burden off of the community to sort of justify why we're doing all this work after we've already gone through school. That's really interesting. So everything that you just said about computational science, and you sort of hinted this at the end, you could literally switch in research software engineering. There needs to be a program for research software engineers to just learn skills to be a research software engineer, which overlap a lot with computational science. So I think yes. you're definitely on, you know, we have an education and training working group that is like working oh. on this exact thing. So I definitely encourage you to come to a meeting or share your ideas because I am fully in agreement there. I also agree it's a cool idea, and I, I think it would definitely work to tackle that diversity problem by way of ensuring that there aren't so many barriers to entry, that we're not losing people on the way so that the people that are in the community eventually will be a larger set that maybe just wouldn't have had the opportunity to even try it out, or they would have been pursuing it, but then they would have fallen off at some point. And as yes. you were talking, I thought of Kind of an interesting other idea. So I guess there's two aspects here. There's like, how do we look at the future and make sure that our community is diverse? But part of my question was also like, how do we look at our Slack channel right now without all these programs and structure, our Slack channel right now and make it a more comfortable and safe place? And I had this random idea. What if we spun the idea of a microaggression on its head and we came up with this idea of a micro compassion? 
So micro-compassion, it sounds like what it is. It could be showing someone kindness, but it also could be almost doing what you did when you joined the Slack. You just, you said, hey, I'm Peter. This is who I am. And my gosh, if the people in the Slack channel were in a room, there would have been like roaring applause. Like the emojis on your introduction were just huge. And so maybe it's sort of like a snowball rolling effect where if we make the space fun, we are open, we tell jokes, we focus on being kind and having fun. People will have more fun and thus be more comfortable to kind of share their stories and share what they think. And maybe that snowball rolling up of these micro compassions can help our community like right now so that the people right now that are camouflaged and that are afraid to share what makes them different, they will feel comfortable to do so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I spent a lot of my original answer talking about recruitment and retention within recruitment. Because if you think about someone still in school as being recruited, they're not ultimately guaranteed to stay in the discipline. But I think retention is really what you're talking about. And retention of diverse people, what it really comes down to is the work environment, the culture. And I think that it's very easy to overlook how much effect that has. And one of the things that I would say as someone coming from a diverse background is sometimes I'm painfully aware of the work culture, painfully aware, even in a good work culture. I think there's so many ways that, like you said, just micro compassions go a long way. And I'm personally a fan of Slack. It might be not the best tool for some folks with ADHD. I personally have ADHD and it can be a nightmare of notifications if I'm not very careful about how I control it, but I love that I have the control. I love that I have the settings. But more than that, I love that I can show some emotion on there. Uh, there are some other chat programs obviously that do this, but just this idea of being able to express emotion with our text has, has gone a long way, I think, for me during the pandemic to not feel so isolated and alone. But in particular, I think it helps other people feel welcomed in. I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned my introduction because that moment for me was really encouraging in USRSU Slack when I had thought about giving this introduction for a long time. And just for context, in case anyone hasn't seen it and is listening, I you know, was open about my diverse background being a veteran, a trans man, and other diversity, person with disabilities and things like that. And just that I have, I have a different socioeconomic background. I'm in a space where I don't have a PhD. I do have some graduate education and I'm working on one part-time, but not yet at the PhD level. And so I'm kind of this, like coming at things from a lot of different angles. And I wasn't sure how folks were going to respond, but for me, it was important to create an open, welcoming space. And I started realizing that with my students, if I give them a welcoming, comfortable space, the moment they come in, I give them some ownership over the work they're doing and I give them choices. I say, these are the things we need to do. We can't choose whether or not to do these things. This area you could explore and I could go explore this other area, or you can work on this while I work on that. You know, like, what are you most interested in? They feel kind of invited in. There are ways that we can treat each other. And that's, that's even just kind of in a mentoring relationship, but even in a collaboration relationship, we can create these kinds of spaces where in subtle ways, we're saying, who are you? What are you interested in? What do you want to do? Let's work together. And I really see that as collaboration. And ultimately, these things like, by the way, I'm trans, and just being like, cool, 
<laughs> you know, I, thanks for sharing. If that's not you, that's fine. You don't have to agree with me in, you know, in your personal opinions on whether or not I should have transitioned or what, but you could at least recognize that my life experience is different than yours. And maybe there's some things I might see differently and that's okay. And we can still kind of have that open collaboration. Or if you're really interested, you know, say, I'd love to have coffee and talk more with you about it. But in those situations where you're not the person coming from a particular diverse category, just inviting others in who are diverse and welcoming them to share maybe a bit of emotion or a bit about themselves, opening it up a little bit to feel more like a community, I think goes a really long way for diverse communities. Because we have experienced marginalization, because we have been pushed to the fringes, because we've been told we don't belong somewhere. And maybe it wasn't this community who told us that yet, but we don't know yet until we're welcome. And so I think the opposite, I'll say, of a community that's lacking in diversity is a community that's welcoming diversity, a community that's inclusive. And that's one of the reasons why I really like not just diversity and equity, but diversity, equity, and inclusion as a concept. Inclusion means everyone. And I'm actually quoting Linda Ackley when I say that. She said that to me. I told her, when I told her that I was trans, she said to me, well, you could have just been a white male and that's okay. You can still work on this diversity, equity, and inclusion because inclusion means everyone. And I really love that concept. The part I'd like to focus on is that the life experiences that we've had, whether they were moral or not in your opinion, isn't really relevant to the workplace. What's relevant is having a good, healthy, welcoming community. And I think that people who disagree on a wide range of things can still be good collaborators, good colleagues, good friends, good coworkers, so long as we're all interested in the aim of being inclusive. Totally agree. And Peter, if we ever get out of this pandemic, I would love to get coffee and hear about your life experiences. Peter, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I wish we actually had more time to keep talking about some of these things. And maybe we should probably make a venue for doing that because I think a lot of others would enjoy these conversations too. And I don't really see them happening, even really in the DEI working group where, where there's a lot of talk about, okay, let's get speakers and that kind of thing, but we don't really talk about our life experiences. And I think that's something that we should do. So thank you so much for being on RSC Stories. And let's, let's work on those uh, micro compassions in our Slack. What do you say? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And yeah, definitely. I have an idea for how we can have more of these conversations as a group, but I think that would be a follow-up conversation for sure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Peter.